might not be quite the same applause for the Liberal Democrats just at the moment, but um, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure about that. Um, first of all, welcome to the LSE for those who are from uh, outside the school community, and a particularly warm welcome to Gordon Brown, who's going to talk about his book, and also to Heather McGregor on his left, uh, also known as Miss Moneypenny of the Financial Times, fresh from a stage appearance in New York, um, and who is going to ask the questions. It's a particular pleasure for me to welcome Gordon to the school because for six years before I came here, he was my boss. Um, and uh, <laughs> it was nice to have the boss back. Um, it, um, it started, however, this relationship in a rather unpropitious way uh, and there's a small part of the story which Gordon doesn't even know, which I will tell you now, is that when the election of 97 took place and within a week uh, as Chancellor, he decided to make the Bank of England independent and create the FSA. And it so happened that the week after the election, I had gone to speak on the Governor's behalf at a conference in Buenos Aires, which the Governor had unwisely accepted before the election and then realised he couldn't really do. So I went down and was sitting on a platform with President Menem, who was the opening of the conference, and I was the keynote speaker. And I had a minder um, for this conference, very efficiently organized, and the minder was an Argentinian girl, rather attractive, but that's completely irrelevant, and um, <laughs> who was called Erika Fugel. It's, it's wise with German Argentines not to ask what grandfather did, but anyway, <laughs> she... She was very efficient, and I was sitting on the platform next to Menem. She came rushing up and put a note in front of me saying, call Mr. Brown urgent. But she spelt Brown, B-R-A-U-N, <laughs> as a German would. And I looked at this and I thought, I don't know a Mr. Brown. And I only knew one Brown who was a, you know, slightly tiresome person at Deutsche Bank at the time and I thought well he can wait so I waited <laughs> for uh, Menem to speak I spoke, coffee break chatted to people, watched the first session of the next thing and then thought I better go to my office and see what this fellow Brown wants and it turned out to be Gordon um, asking me to be chairman of the Financial Services Authority and I, his office were panicking because the Chancellor uh, didn't particularly expect to be kept waiting for several hours while this idiot worked out who it was who was trying to get him on the phone. <laughs> anyway, um, things improved from there, I hope. Um, but it's a great pleasure uh, to have you here at the school, um, Gordon, and we are very much looking forward to what you have to say. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm really excited to be here at the LSE um, to introduce Gordon Brown this evening. And um, as Howard just said, I write the Mrs. Moneypenny column in the FT. After what I've just heard, I'm sending Howard next year to New York to go on stage in my show. <laughs> I think he'd get a lot more laughs. He's brilliant. Um, I'm very pleased to see the paper on the front row over there. Um, and, uh, of course, this is a newspaper, the Financial Times, which, until about three years ago, was read by a real minority of people because the financial world was something that most people didn't think affected them. And then that all changed, of course, for most people, one horrible weekend in 2007. Um, and all I would say about it is that, that is that, thank God, Gordon Brown was our Prime Minister at that time because that's when we had to have decisive action. We didn't have any faffing around, any worrying about what would He knew that what we needed was stability, and he knew what would happen if we didn't get it. And growing up, and I'm sure he'll talk about this, growing up he saw how um, a recession and how things that went wrong with the economy affected the lives of real people. And he knew that if he didn't make the unpopular choices, and there's a part of this book where he says that he at one stage got up in the morning expecting not to have his job that night. Uh, he knew that if he didn't make unpopular choices, we wouldn't be in the position we are in today um, of actually having a reasonably resilient economy for all of the grief that we hear about. So I'm I personally like passion and conviction in my politicians. I like people who want to change the world for somewhere better. And I can't think of anybody who embodies that more than Gordon Brown, who's here to speak to us tonight. Thank you very much.
Can I, can I say first of all what a real pleasure it is to be at the London School of Economics, uh, to be here and to have been introduced first of all by Howard Davis, and I hope you're glad you returned that call, Howard. <laughs> I, I used to be a university uh, lecturer, and I know that universities stand for objectivity, rationality, impartiality, the disinterested pursuit of truth, and these are all the qualities you have to leave behind when you go into politics. <laughs> I'm delighted also that Heather is uh, going to be uh, uh, involved in this discussion with us uh, this evening because, as Howard has said, she is not only uh, a, a writer, she's a, a businesswoman, uh, she's an executive of great distinction, uh, she is also a playwright and also a superb uh, actress. And so, uh, when talking about polymaths, I think uh, Heather beats them all. Now, I've had a bit of time for reflection, uh, not necessarily voluntarily. <laughs> I took my um, uh, son to school and then picked him up uh, a, few, a few weeks ago, uh, and he's four years old. And he, I said to him, what do you want to be? And he said, Dad, he said, I want to be a teacher and a builder. And then I was really pleased, and a dad. And I thought, isn't that marvelous? And he said, but you're just a dad. <laughs> and put me in my place. <laughs> I want to talk this evening about the global economy. I, I'm sorry the American ambassador or anybody from the American embassy is not here this evening, otherwise I could be assured of a worldwide audience uh, very quickly. <laughs> you, know, you know, in Cambridge University they say uh, a secret is where you tell only one person. We now know that a diplomatic secret is when you have access to at least one and a quarter million people who can read what you are doing. My theme in this uh, book and my theme this evening is what's been happening uh, to the global economy and to our hopes of a global society. And I want to talk about the trends at work, the forces that are changing our lives and what is likely to happen in the future and what we can actually do uh, about it. You know, when the crisis started and Heather described one weekend that was uh, particularly difficult, I got a letter from a seven-year-old boy in my own constituency. Uh, and I picked up this uh, letter, and it was handed to me by a civil servant, and said, uh, look at what this young chap has read, has written to you. And I read it, and it said, dear Mr. Brown, why don't you just print more money? <laughs> and I couldn't say to that civil servant uh, that next, the next week we are just about to announce exactly that, <laughs> so that the young seven-year-old was very precedent. precedent. But you know the insecurity that people have felt and did feel as a result of the global financial crisis. I got a letter also from a lady at the time who said that she had already packed up her house because she knew that she wasn't going to be able to afford a mortgage and was waiting uh, to be repossessed. And the insecurity that people felt and feel is reflected in things that are happening in almost every part of the world at the moment. Uh, and there is a common uh, thread that links the democratic defeat in the midterm elections, what happened in Britain, what happened in Australia, what's happened in Netherlands, Denmark and Belgium where very right-wing parties have gained, uh, anti-immigrant parties have gained huge support in Sweden, in Vienna where a neo-Nazi party has gained 25% of the vote and there is an insecurity around the world where people need answers. And there is a thread that links also all the events of the last few years. What happened at Lehman Brothers? What happened to Northern Rock? What's happened to Irish banks? What's happened to the Greek uh, debt and Greek finances? Why the recovery has been so difficult in so many countries? And I would like to suggest that the thread is not what we commonly think of or at all are the common threads, debt and deficits. That is only a symptom of a bigger change that is taking place. And the real underlying force at work in our society right across the world is that we are witnessing the biggest and the most irreversible shift in economic power that we have ever seen in the history of the world. And it is that underlying force that is creating the insecurity but is behind many of the events that we have seen over these last few years. Now what do I mean? For 200 years, two centuries, Europe and America have monopolized world economic activity. So the majority of the world's uh, output the main part of the world's manufacturing, uh, the main part of our trade and exports, more than the half of our 
Consumer spending, more than half of our investment for 200 years, uh, has been occurring in America and Europe. And 10% of the population have been producing and manufacturing and exporting more than 50% of the world's goods and services over that period of time. And in 2010, something quite different is now uh, seen as happening before us. And the rest of the world is now outproducing, outmanufacturing, outinvesting, uh, and outtrading Europe and America. And this is a huge shift that has taken place in the world economy. And it has happened as a result of two big forces that have been at work for a few decades and have now, with irre irres irresistible force, have now changed the world for good. The first is the global flows of capital. So capital will flow to those areas where it can get, obviously, the best return. And the second is the global sourcing of goods. So goods and services, but particularly goods, sourced in the place where you can get the cheapest and most cost-effective uh, production. And that has meant that China, India, Asia, Brazil, South Africa, Russia, many countries are moving forward. And you will never have a situation again where the West has monopolized the world's economic activity. And that means, of course, that jobs are at risk. It means that industries are under pressure. It means that companies have got to change the way they uh, react to events and the way they plan for the future. It means that opportunities that people have taken for granted are also under strain. And it means that we in Europe and America particularly, but the whole of the world, has got to think about what it is going to do to respond to this irreversible force that is changing our lives uh, for good. I've been in China and India fairly recently. And you can see the confidence. If you actually look at opinion polls that are taken all around the world, then it is very surprising that uh, the countries that are the wealthiest, that is Europe and America, are the countries that feel least secure about the future, least confident about the future, and even consumer confidence is higher in countries like China and India than it is in Britain or Europe uh, and America. I actually met the Indian Trade Finance Minister when I was in uh, India a few months ago, and he was telling me he'd been in China a few weeks before, and it had been uh, snowing, and therefore he'd gone into one of the international shops uh, to buy uh, what he said was the best black cashmere coat I could get hold of. And they showed him something, they named a price, it was only $200, uh, very cheap, uh, he thought at the time. And then he said to them, but there's no label. And they said to him, well, what label do you want? Burberry, Armani, <laughs> Dior, you choose. Now, that is India and China, and India saying that uh, it's got something on China. But the important thing that we're witnessing is India, China, Asia moving forward, but moving forward to the point at which the rest of the world produces more, manufactures more, exports more, and invests more than Europe and America. But the one thing they don't do is consume more. So even at the time at which the rest of the world produces more, Europe and America are consuming most. And that is the reason why the world economy is so unbalanced at the moment, uh, and why we have the currency wars, the trade wars, the export wars, and everything that is happening. Now what does it mean for the future? If I was simply to stop there, you would think the story in Britain, America, Europe would be one of decline over the next few years, at least relatively in relation to the rest of the world. But there is a second force at work, another massive transformation that is about to take place, and something that will change again the world for good and make it completely different as we face the future. And it is this, that there are two billion producers who've entered the world economy from Asia particularly, but from all the emerging market countries over the last few years. But these producers will themselves wish to become consumers in the years to come. And the latest estimates is that China will be consuming more than America by 2020. The latest estimates are that the non-Japan part of Asia will be consuming a third of the world's consumer products by 2020. And basically, we are going to add over the next 10 or 15 years two Americas to the consuming power of the world. And we're going to have millions of consumers who are wanting to buy goods and services
that have produced to best quality, high technology, custom built, uh, design goods, and of course branded goods in which Europe and America excel. So this is the challenge, but it's also the opportunity. It's the challenge because obviously with this new great consumer market that's developing, which will be the driving force of the world economy in the next 10, 15 years, with this new force of consumer power, uh, Asia and the emerging markets could be the biggest beneficiary. But it is also possible that Europe and America, in rebalancing the world economy, can gain massive benefits from being part of that world economy. But it does mean, if this is true, and I am right, that the economic orthodoxies of the present make very little sense if we are really planning for the future. If we are to benefit from these changes in the world economy, then we will have to invest more in science and technology and education and universities. And any cuts and reductions in these investments will seem penny-wise but pound-foolish as we face the future. It also means, of course, that we have got to resist protectionist sentiment and if we in Europe and America want to get the benefits of huge markets across the world, then we must become the champions of open and free trade and not yield to all the protectionist sentiments that now exist in Europe and America. But it also means that the growth over the next few years has got to be coordinated and planned rather than just simply left to accident. And we've got to pressure the Chinese and the Asians into moving further and faster their rise in consumer expenditure, while at the same time we have got to rethink what we are doing so that we make sure we make the investments that are needed. And I can see no way to do this and to open up trade and to make sure that growth is steady and sustainable and creates jobs other than a global growth pact agreed between the major continents. And just as we had to come together in 2008 to deal with the banking crisis and restructure our banks, and 2009 to deal with the economic uh, crisis that threatened uh, depression and put uh, what was a two trillion stimulus into the world economy. So in 2011, I believe if we don't come together to plan the way forward, continent to continent, then we will indeed face uh, a decade of high unemployment and low growth in Europe. But there's uh, another point that I think comes out of everything that we've discussed over recent years. Howard has written on the financial crisis in detail, uh, and I applaud the books that he has done. And there is one point that I think we've got to recognize. There are two great forces at work in the world economy, changing the world for good, as I've said, global flows of capital, global sourcing of goods. But there is another force at work, and it's got to be stronger. And that is a global sense of fairness and responsibility. And the lesson that I take out of the financial crisis is that the very values that we expect to be exhibited in our daily family lives, in our communities and voluntary organizations, in our schools and in our public services, and in our small businesses and the businesses that we respect, in our own areas and in our own uh, communities, are values that have also got to pre be preeminent and cannot simply be washed away by saying that globalization exists. In other words, the financial system itself must take responsibility and must show that it operates according to the highest ethical standards. And I believe that the third force at work in the world is our ability to communicate globally must now also be reflected in our determination to make sure that entrenched at the base of our financial system as well as our economic and social systems as a whole are these values of fairness and responsibility. Now how do I show that to you to best effect? Look at Africa. Look at Africa and how the global flows of capital have failed Africa because only 1% of investment, foreign direct investment, in the world goes to Africa. Look at how the global sourcing of goods has also failed to deliver growth in the way that we would want to take millions of people out of poverty in Africa because only 1% or so of manufactured goods are produced in a continent that's responsible for 13% of the population. But we know that if Africa is going to grow sustainably, and indeed all the developing countries are going to grow, and take millions of people out of poverty and make globalization work for ordinary people instead of working against ordinary people, then we need economic arrangements that are underpinned by these values of fairness and responsibility. Africa can grow, and Africa can create jobs and take millions of people out of poverty in the next few years. And there are signs that African leaders are determined to do that 
and are planning uh, measures that will make that happen. But we in the developed countries have got to be there working in partnership to make sure that the values that underpin the new financial system and the new world economic order include these values of fairness and responsibility as well. Now, I've had a, the pleasure and the privilege of dealing with many African leaders over the, next, uh, uh, over the last few years. Uh, Nelson Mandela, I count as someone who I have had the privilege, because of the offices I held, to know well and to know his family well. In fact, when Nelson Mandela came to London for his uh, 90th birthday celebrations, I had the privilege of sitting next to him as that great concert that many of you will remember uh, took place uh, in Hyde Park to celebrate the birthday. And I was sitting there explaining to him all the different uh, artists and uh, uh, pop stars that were coming on the stage and trying to explain what they did and where they came from. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it came to Amy Winehouse. Uh, and there was no doubt that Nelson Mandela was interested in Amy Winehouse. And he was looking very carefully through the television screen as well as on the stage at what she was doing. And then he was asking who she was, and as I started to explain, she answered the question for herself, uh, for, that he asked for her, uh, herself. And she said, um, Nelson Mandela, she said, and my husband have a great deal in common. And she said, both of them have spent a lot of time in prison. <laughs> <laughs> And when, and when they were singing uh, Free, Free Mandela, uh, she was singing Free Blakey, My Fellow. Uh, and uh, then uh, a, few months, uh, a few months later, we awarded Nelson Mandela's wife, uh, Grash Michelle, who is a brilliant and uh, wonderful woman, we awarded her uh, the Damehood of the British Empire for her services, particularly to education and to helping children in conflict. And so the award was to, to be given uh, to her. Um, my son, uh, John, happened to share the same birthday as Grasha Michelle, and for years they have exchanged presents on the, on the, on the same uh, day, and they send cards to each other and, and everything else. Uh, but Grasha was awarded the um, commander of the British Empire, the Damehood. Paul Boating uh, received a parcel from the, uh, the British uh, government. He decided to have a huge celebration of uh, Grasha's uh, Damehood, and he invited all the other ambassadors and high commissioners and invited all Grasha's family and others to the High Commission so that he would personally present this uh, new award uh, to her. And the day arrived, everybody turned up, huge attendance, and Paul took the package from the British uh, government and opened it in her presence. And as he opened it, the tinsel of a young child's present to Grasha Michelle, and not the honour, became apparent. Uh, and uh, he had to uh, suspend the proceedings and apologise to her that my young son had sent a present and he had mistaken that for the honour that she was uh, supposed to receive. But let's be honest about uh, the world as we see it in the future. Too many children are dying early deaths. Uh, too many people, uh, uh, mothers, are dying in, 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 in childbirth. Too many children, 70 million children, are still not going to school. One billion people are still in poverty. One and a half billion people live without sanitation. 800 million people live without water. More than a billion uh, people uh, go without the necessary provisions of life. And many others are in relative and not absolute uh, poverty. Now, if we are going to build a global society that we can be proud of, we have got to start from the crisis that we faced, analyze what actually happened and what went wrong, understand that the system will change over these next uh, few years dramatically once again, and the restructuring that has happened in the last decade will be followed by massive restructuring in the next decade. But recognize also that we've got to underpin the global system of the future by strong values that people right across the world can communicate with each other about, believe in, and demand that the politicians apply. So I'm not just launching a charity book this evening. Uh, what I'm saying is that there is a cause, and what I'm saying is that there is a campaign around that cause, that it is possible by common action around the world to create probably 50 million extra jobs in the next few years, 100 million people taken out of avoidable uh, poverty, growth far higher than what was uh, deemed uh, possible, but we've got to understand that the policies have got to relate to the economic challenges that really exist in the future and how we tackle them with new approaches is absolutely essential to what uh, we do. One of the um, great uh, privileges I've had over the last few weeks 
is to be at Harvard University and to have contributed to a memorial uh, to President uh, Kennedy's life. It will be 50 years next year, next January, since that great inauguration address that he gave. And some of you may have uh, read uh, the inauguration address that is held to be one of the greatest speeches of all time. Ask not what um, your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. The torch has passed to a new generation. Never negotiate from fear, never fear to negotiate. Some wonderful words that suggested how a new world could be created. And what I was asked to do was to contribute um, in uh, my uh, part of the inaugural address so that there'd be a compilation uh, made up by politicians or people from all over the world so it'd be read by those people as a memorial to President Kennedy. And I was asked to read the paragraph that says that divided we will fail, but united we can achieve the abolition of poverty, of hunger, of disease, of illiteracy, and of war around the world. One of the great Kennedy phrases in that great Kennedy speech. It is still the aim and aspiration of all decent people around the world to make a better world by making globalization work for people instead of work simply for blind forces. It is what I believe in. It is what I think most people around this country believe in. It is what I think people around the world can be persuaded to believe in. Round this book launch is a petition that is being put to the G20 that is being run by AVAS, A-V-A-A-Z, and you can sign it immediately, and 150,000 have already done so. And round this uh, book is also a campaign to put jobs and justice at the top of the agenda. It is the only way and the best way to make globalization work. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Gordon. I'm, I have to say, I'm absolutely delighted that so many people are here tonight to see the Gordon Brown that I've known for years and years, the, the warm, the funny, the, um, the absolutely passionately uh, committed to making the world a better place. Um, what we're going to do now is have uh, some Q&A. We had a, a plan that we would finish at 7.30, but we started a bit late, so we will finish a bit later. Um, I've got uh, three questions. I'm going to ask two at the beginning and one at the end. Um, in the middle, uh, there are two charming young men in red T-shirts here who have got microphones, and they are going to bring the microphones to whoever uh, wants to ask a question. They have told me I have to identify you through your clothing. So I'm going to be looking for very exciting clothing uh, when we look for the questions. Um, I'm not going to get cold then, am I? <laughs> <laughs> you won't be asking a not, question not exactly, though. yes. yes. Um, Gordon, the first thing I, um, I, I have to say, I sped read this book uh, today, which was, uh, I have to say, great fun, and um, it had... It, had, it provoked a lot of thinking in me, but it was also a very warm and personal memoir. Um, and you address right at the beginning why you wrote it, and that's the first question I want to ask you. Um, you, you talk about why now, but then you say, but, you know, why at all? And you describe, describe it as a necessary means of provoking a much-needed debate about what I believe is the only way to overcome disastrous economic collapse, which is coordinated global action. Um, but it's more than that, isn't it? You actually want to start a whole campaign with this. Yeah, I want people to understand. Uh, you, you know, when I, when I was chairman of the, uh, the International Monetary Fund Committee and trying to press reforms through, there was massive demonstrations taking place in Washington at the time. And I went to, to one of the meetings, and there was all these banners outside. And, and one of the banners summed up the problem that we face. And one of the banners actually said, worldwide campaign against globalization. And it sounds ridiculous. In France, actually, they ran a campaign uh, so, some, somewhat similar, but it was actually no to 2009, sort of nihilism. Uh, and if we are going to make globalization work, as I said at the end of my, my, my remarks, then we're going to have to do something about it. And I feel that the debates in every country I've visited tend towards what's happening in our own country as if that country's experience is completely isolated from the rest of the world. So if you go around Europe at the moment, people say, well, the problem is debt and deficits. Uh, if you go around America, they say the problem is too many Chinese uh, uh, imports uh, in, into the country. If you go to Africa, they say the problem is that nobody's, nobody's prepared to invest uh, in, in, in our country. 
if you go to, if you go to China, they say that uh, American currency sort of practices are, are damaging them. But if you actually look at what is the underlying truth about what each country wants to achieve, China wants to, to tackle poverty and build its middle class. Uh, India wants to tackle poverty. No, no, no industrializing country in the 19th century like Britain or Germany or France or America committed themselves to the abolition or the substantial reduction of poverty in the way that these countries have done so. And America wants to restore its uh, middle-class uh, dream, its, uh, its dream of opportunity for all. Now, it seems to me that by the world getting together, the American idea of investing in the future and giving people better opportunities and the Chinese and India idea that they can actually tackle poverty together, uh, as the East consumes more, then both these objectives can be achieved. So it makes common sense, in my view, to show that what's in the national interest of each country is also in the global interest and can benefit the rest of the world. So I feel that there is a mission because I feel that, uh, I'll be honest, we did not manage to communicate this message. Uh, in an audience uh, uh, over these last uh, few months, and particularly during the time of election, in the way that I wanted to do. We couldn't persuade people that the issue was about how we grow our economy for the future and how we create new opportunities for people to benefit from this huge middle-class revolution that's going to take place in Asia. And therefore, the debate in Britain, just like the debate in all the other countries, became insular and became uh, one that was almost uh, self-contained as if the world didn't matter. Now, I think uh, that I've got more freedom now to talk about the issues that matter around the world, and I can see the link between that poor person in Africa, that person striving to get a home in, in, in China, and that person worried about their unemployment in America and Europe, uh, and therefore to link the needs of these different continents where poverty is the problem in Africa and Asia, where inequality is the problem in America, and where unemployment is the problem in Europe, and all three problems have a chance of being solved by a global growth plan that we can agree together is indeed something that I think is, is worth uh, everybody thinking about and worth campaigning for. Yeah. Um, now, I've had the great privilege to hear you speak at the last two UN General Assemblies, um, and it always struck me that uh, you had a great um, rapport and, and with all the other leaders that you were with when on the subject of things like Africa. So what do you think is going to be the biggest barrier, though, to change in somewhere like Africa? Well, I think the biggest barrier around the world to everything that we're talking about this evening is, a, is, is the protectionism of the mind. It's really people being protectionist in sentiment. I think the worry in Africa now, uh, I'll, be, I'll be honest, is that people feel that the West is not going to be able to keep its promises and doesn't keep its promises. And I think we've got a problem over these next few years because we've got millennium development goals that are not going to be met uh, unless something changes, unless something gives. And we have committed ourselves to helping Africa and the developing countries get every child to school. But as things go, there will be more young people not at school in Africa in 2015 than today. Uh, and we have committed to huge uh, reductions in infant and maternal mortality. And while some improvements have been made, not enough has been done. So I think the great problem we face in, in Africa is that Africa will start to look towards China and Asia and not towards America and Europe. Uh, and of course, if Africa cannot deal with its problems of in inequality and poverty, and if people become even more resentful about the injustices that are visited upon them in Africa, then there is also a security problem because there is no doubt that Al-Qaeda is trying to make progress in different countries in Africa. And I went to school in uh, Nigeria, in Abuja, where it was in a completely dilapidated condition and people were being asked to get education. They all, all the children had great ambitions. They wanted to be architects and doctors and they wanted to be scientists. They had great ambitions. None of them wanted to be a politician, by the way. They, they, all, wanted, they all had these great ambitions. Uh, but there was no chance of being, being successful because of the quality of education. Then up the road, a madrasas had been started by an extreme Islamic uh, group, uh, and people were getting free education and getting the best of facilities. And this is one of the challenges we face in Africa. And we've got to be realistic about how our failure to deliver and to help in a partnership with Africa to make sure they enjoy the fruits of globalization uh, leads to the cynicism and disillusionment that will force Africa or allow Africa, unfortunately, to become partners uh, with other countries than America and Europe. So that is a big problem. Okay, uh, right, yes, okay, I'm going to get really good at clothes here. So we're going to start with the gentleman in the grey, presumably cashmere sweater, and, uh, and then we're going to go to the gentleman in the red hoodie over there. Right, would okay, you like to say your name first? 
Thank you very much, Mr. Brown. My name is Teddy Nicholson. I'm a third-year undergraduate in international relations here at the LSC. Uh, you talked a lot in very broad, very sweeping terms about the future of world economics. Um, I'm just curious about your, uh, your view of the future of world politics and whether you think that the, uh, that the huge change in economics we're going to see, the huge rebalancing, whether you do think that is going to be accompanied by a global liberalization of the new economic powers in the world. I, I think what's going to happen to politics is that people are going to um, be very um, critical of incumbent government. Uh, because they don't see governments providing the answers that they want. You know, why is it in 2010, in the most technologically sophisticated age that we have ever lived in, where the ability to communicate and to, to work uh, globally is, is so obvious as a result of the huge advances that have been made, where people have generally more material prosperity than uh, ever they have, uh, they, they have had, why is there so much insecurity? And if people can answer that question and try to provide only national answers to what are global problems, uh, then they are bound to fail as, as politicians and unable to get the support of their people. Uh, and that's a trend that you can see in almost every industrialized country in, in, in the world. Uh, and I think uh, as we look to the, to, to the future, unless we can provide answers, which means that you've got to have uh, global solutions as well as national answers to the problems that we face. And I would tell you that I don't think you can have financial stability in just one country now. If you have financial instability in any part of the world that is at least a major, has a major financial center, uh, then it's got to be dealt with at a global level. You can't solve climate change without global action. I don't think you can solve the problem of growth without uh, the ability to trade, which requires international agreements. Uh, and that's why I say that unless people face up to the fact that national problems require global solutions as well as national solutions, then incumbent politicians will be in difficulty. As far as economic ideology is concerned, uh, what, what's happened, if you like, over the last few years is that the barrenness of uh, a totally free market uh, ideology has been exposed, that in every generation you've got to have a good relationship or a, a new type of relationship between individuals, markets and governments, and we're having to settle a new relationship between individual markets and governments in which uh, governments are not overpowering but are enabled to do things that are necessary to ensure both stability and prosperity and where markets operate according to values. So I think the real uh, uh, change in the 21st century is that the 20th century was about battles between markets and states. So you had governments and parties supporting markets and others supporting, if you like, government power and, and market power. In the 21st century, I think culture, values, ethics are going to be far more important and markets and governments uh, will have to operate towards uh, uh, operate to ethical rules that can be agreed not just at a national level but debated at a global level as well. So that's how I see ideology changing over the next few years. Um, good evening, Mr. Brown. My name is Philip Gardner. I'm a first-year student studying history and war studies at King's College London. Um, and you have always identified a link between inequality and education and economic growth. And uh, on that subject, I was wondering whether you would comment on the uh, economic and moral results of the fact that more people from the constituency of Richmond in southwest London go to Oxford every year and have done for the last 20 years than the whole of Scotland combined. Thank you. <laughs> like I, I, I don't think that's uh, particularly a point about uh, Scotland or Wales. Or, uh, I, I think it's more a point about... Um, uh, access to, to universities uh, uh, generally. And I think David Lammy has just produced a study about um, uh, entry to colleges at Oxford University uh, showing the, 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 the very small number of uh, black applicants that, that, that get in. I, I, I'm in favour of the widest possible access, not because I'm against excellence in education, but because I'm in favour of excellence in education. And I'm in favour of opportunities uh, being greater uh, for far more people. And even in my own constituency in the last few weeks, I've seen our local college turn away 2,000 potential students who are perfectly well qualified for entry for full-time courses, but they have had their places cut and are not able to take these uh, students on. And I just say to you that it is short-sighted to cut education. Uh, and of course you want to achieve social mobility through education and therefore you want the widest possible intake 
but you also want to maximize the number of people who are able to realize the potential through education. So I think we should be very careful uh, when we consider in a period of fiscal consolidation that education and, and universities uh, uh, should uh, face uh, such uh, severe uh, cuts. In my view, education, science, technology and universities uh, have got to be supported. And if we were to do that, then the, the very uh, need for social mobility that you've uh, highlighted, where more students should come from a wider range of backgrounds, both uh, colours uh, and classes, to, uh, to university and to college, uh, that should be at the top of our uh, agenda as well. We will succeed in the new world economy only if we have the potential of people in our country realised to the full. And that means that you have got to invest in every part of the world in, in, in education. And I, I believe that's uh, one of the lessons that the economic orthodoxy of today is not teaching us, that if you don't invest for the future, then you don't have the kind of future that we need. Um, so can we have a gentleman here in the off-grey jumper? Uh, and then we will go to the gentleman afterwards with his hand up with the sort of black top. <laughs> uh, Mike Cushman, University and College Union Branch Secretary for LSE. Mr Brown, just to start, you talk about education, science, technology and universities. I assume it was just a slip of the tongue that social scientists and humanities were not included in that list of essential things for... for I was talking about science, comma, technology, comma, universities and education. But where are social sciences in there? Part of universities, a very important part of universities <laughs> and education. Okay. Um, you and I had free university education. My son paid £1,000 a year for his university education. My daughter, £3,000 a year. Luckily, I have no more children. Do you not feel that the university's policy of the Labour government set us on the disastrous slippery slope downwards towards a university system that ordinary people will not be able to afford to go to? But surely the principle is this. Nobody should be prevented by reasons of finance from realising the potential at college and university. Now, in the past, you're absolutely right, when only 5% of the population, of the young population, went to university, and that was the time, it just tells you when I went to university, uh, uh, it was possible to afford um, a situation where many people got uh, a grant that was a full grant, a full maintenance grant, as well as the fees paid. In the new world, when we want 50% at least of young people to be able to go to university, it's clear that the partnership for paying for that university has got to be thought in a new way. And I think it was right to say that uh, just as in the past parents and government shared the cost whenever it had to be borne so that people should not be discriminated from going to university by reasons of the finance, so in future that people who are going to graduate and earn more as a result of graduating, and it's 50% more over a lifetime on average that people earn, should contribute. But the question is, and this is what we're debating at the moment, uh, whether the arrangements become so difficult and so punitive uh, that large numbers of people are discouraged from going to university. And that is the problem that we face at the moment. I think it's wrong to cut education in universities at the moment, and I think it's wrong to have a system that is, uh, in a sense, making it very, very difficult for many people to contemplate the level of debt that they're going to have after they, com they, they complete university. So I don't agree with you on the principal question. I think now that you've got 50%, you've got to share the cost. But I do agree with you that we must make sure that in every decision we make, there is no financial barrier to people being able to contemplate university and indeed college, because that is important as well. And I think that is still the principle that must underline our thinking. And that's why on Thursday I will vote against the government on the issue of tuition. Now, now you know why in my Mrs. Moneypenny column I refer to my children as cost centres, one, two and three. Right. Hi, um, Anthony Neal, I'm a first year undergrad at LSE, and they kind of nicked my question, but anyway. Um, <laughs> as you said that you were uh, against the proposed um, raising tuition fees, perhaps you wouldn't encourage our Chancellor to um, also support our protest? <laughs> 
Well, that's a question for the Chancellor. Where, where I is know, the Chancellor? I know. <laughs> I think that's more of a statement than a question, really. Yeah. I, I think what we will do, actually, now, I feel very guilty that I haven't looked at the middle uh, section here. So, um, well, let's go to the back. The gentleman with the black jumper in the middle. You should have all have worn much brighter colours <laughs> now that I knew I had to go down colour coding. Um, and then we will come down here to the gentleman in the grey shirt. Good evening, Mr. Brown. Um, the government announced today plans of cutting international student immigration into the country. Firstly, do you think it's a bit ironic that in the age of globalization, Britain is closing its doors from international students from overseas? And secondly, how far do you think this would affect the sort of globalized economy that you are campaigning and advocating? I should perhaps have said when I was uh, speaking uh, that I think education will be our biggest uh, wealth creator in the years to come. So at the moment, uh, we have a number of big industries, but education is going to increase in importance. Uh, and that means that we have got to get the benefit from, there are probably about six million potential students who wish to study overseas from the place in which they were born or brought up uh, and want to consider either a British, American, or other university away from their home. We now have about, Howard was telling me, 90,000 Chinese students in Britain. We've got 20,000 Indian students. There is an overseas student market of 2 million people at the moment. It will rise to 6 million. We've got 15% of it. It should rise in the years to come so that we are capable of taking more international students in Britain. It's not just good because it's a wealth creator. It's good because it means that people can actually exchange views across uh, uh, different uh, uh, religions, across different faiths, across different national identities, across different cultures. Uh, and I believe the idea of a global university, and LSE is, is one of them, there are others that have got different portals of entry around the world where they are offering students the chance to start in one country and finish or do some part of the studies in another country, that is going to be the way of the future. So, yes, I agree with you, we should be encouraging international students. That means that uh, universities have got to be in a position to take not just British uh, students, but take international students, and it's a very high percentage here in the LSE uh, that is offered a chance, a chance to study here, but it means that we've got to think ahead, and uh, to cut investment in education makes absolutely no sense to me at the moment. If you're thinking about the new global economy, and not just about what happens next month and next year, you've got to think about what are the crucial ingredients uh, for the growth that we want to create, and clearly investment, but educational opportunity and exporting our educational uh, uh, talents is going to be very important. So I look for more global universities from Britain, and LSE is obviously one of the leaders. I agree with what you've said. Thank you. So we're going to come down here, actually, now to the fourth row in. Uh, the fourth row in here. It's great. And then I know that the lady in the, at the very end of the front desk here in, in the black scarf it, uh, would like to ask a question, and after that we'll take two more. Hello, uh, my name is Mustafa Izzuddin. I'm a PhD uh, student in international relations at the LSE. Um, I've got two very brief questions. First is, now that you have left the corridors of power, and much of what you have said, uh, or what you have presented today, is very relevant in today's context, um, how much impact do you realistically hope your book can achieve, both domestically and globally? Um, and the other question is, it's quite striking that in your presentation, you've not mentioned the European Union. Uh, how much does the U EU feature in your global economic thinking? Thank you. So please hear, by the way, that it's a whole chapter. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, it, and the other thing to say is this book will start making a very big impact if you all go out and buy it and get it signed. You know, you know the attitude of uh, Britain uh, to Europe was summed up by this uh, Eurosceptic uh, MEP, member of the European Parliament, doing a debate on radio about his, uh, his views on the euro and his views on, on, on Europe. And this interviewer kept saying to him, why are you so against Europe? Why are you so against the euro? Why are you so hostile to, to Europe? Why do you sort of uh, come out against Europe all the time? And he said, is it ignorance or apathy? And the guy replied, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, I, I want to correct, uh, therefore, the, the original uh, uh, remarks I made because uh, a solution to the, the problem of European growth and how it's going to happen is absolutely vital to the world economy. Uh, I fear, to be honest, a decade of high unemployment in Europe. 
Uh, European unemployment is around 10% at the moment. Youth unemployment is 40% in Spain. It's very high in many other countries as well. And I fear the combination of three problems is going to make uh, Europe's development uh, very, very difficult over the next few years. The first is obviously the deficit uh, reductions that are, that are, that are taking uh, uh, place. The second is actually something that is not talked about so much, but it is a cause of many of the deficits, but it's still an underlying problem. I don't know if Howard agrees. It's the liabilities that banks have, uh, and it's liabilities that they have not just in the peripheral countries, as they call them, Spain and Portugal and Ireland and, and Greece, and these liabilities are very high. It's the liabilities that banks in Germany and France and right at the core of Europe have, have as well. And we know that many of the uh, European banks uh, bought huge amounts of subprime mortgages from the states. We know that they're involved in big commercial property uh, uh, investments that have gone sour. And we know also that they own a large amount of, uh, of uh, uh, Spain, Portugal, Irish, and Greek debt. So there are bank liabilities that have got to be dealt with. And the, the third thing is honest, the, the structural impediments to growth. Now, the reason I did not favor joining the euro is because I saw that um, uh, I, with an inability to, to adjust your currency and with an interest rate that is set to suit 17 countries, 16 countries, 17 soon countries in the euro area and therefore is a one-size-fits-all interest rate and with the difficulties of achieving structural reform in the European countries, I felt the euro was too inflexible for Britain to be able to benefit from, from, from membership. And I felt that if we were to be in the euro, we would have been forced into far higher rates of unemployment uh, as, as, as a result. Now I think the rest of the euro area has got to come to terms with the conclusions that we reached and that is that if you don't have uh, flexibility in your currency and in your interest rates you've got to find another way of ensuring that your economy can grow uh, sustainably and I think Europe is going to have to get together, the euro area in particular, I think just as in 2009 the world had to get together to deal with the problem that was looming which was a great depression and preventing that happening, I think the euro area has got to get together and it can only move forward by solving these three problems in one. It cannot do so just by dealing with the deficit because you'll not have growth. Uh, it cannot do so by dealing uh, only with the growth issues because there are huge bank liabilities as well as debt and deficits. It's got to deal with these three problems together. So uh, I do say there's a big challenge ahead for, for Europe. America's challenge is to restore and reinvent for the people of America the American dream. And that means there's got to be greater opportunity in a country that's got too much inequality. Europe's problem is it faces high unemployment over the next uh, uh, few years with a road out of that not easily uh, available because of the inflexibilities I'm talking about. So these are big challenges that we've got to face up to. But I'm confident if we could bring these three problems together uh, and Europe was, uh, uh, in a sense, had a plan uh, that we could actually uh, achieve, uh, achieve growth. So I'm an optimist if we take the right, uh, the right measures. As far as what I'm saying, a campaign, uh, Avars, many of you may have heard of, is a campaigning organization that I've got a great deal of uh, time for. There, it's got six million members uh, around, around the world on the internet. I would urge people who have not looked at that site to look at it. But it's now running a campaign to persuade the G20 to take seriously this global agenda of creating 30 to 50 million jobs, of taking 100 million people out of poverty, of raising the level of growth in the world economy by cooperative uh, action, uh, and thus helping the developing countries as well as the developed countries. Uh, and if you sign that uh, petition, then you're registering your view that there's got to be global uh, action to deal with the problem. So yes, it's part of a, a campaign that I would commend uh, to you, because we've got to persuade people around the world uh, that global cooperation can make uh, a huge uh, a difference. So Barack Obama moved from being a community organizer uh, to becoming uh, a politician. I've moved from being a politician to becoming a community organizer. And if you want a link to that campaign, it's on Gordon and Sarah's new website, which is uh, very originally called gordonandsarahbrown.com. <laughs> Um, right, uh, this lady here, and then we are going to take two more questions, and then I have one more question, and then Mr. Brown will be signing books. Good evening. My name is Johanna Michael, and as a student of global communication, postgraduate at LSE, I am very... Can you, can you talk much closer to the microphone, please? Oh, okay. Um, I am very interested in the way you are thinking of enforcing such a... Not you personally, um, <laughs> but such a moral and ethical code into economics because globalization is fair and good but 
as much as we may be united in suffering the consequences, we are not united in dealing with them. And I agree with your analysis thus far. But we're not united because of all these cultural differences, interest differences. And who's got the authority to implement such a big moral code onto all the countries involved? Who has the authority to deal with it? Yeah, I, I, the study of economics, and people will correct me who know more about uh, the day-to-day -day teaching of economics th than I do, uh, has uh, uh, concentrated on a particular model of uh, economic efficiency over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. You can see now that people are talking about behavioral economics, trying to understand why people don't do the things that you would expect of them if you simply took a rational view of what they were likely uh, to do. And therefore, behavioral economics, animal spirits, all these books are now out to try and explain people's behavior in different ways. But I think we're going to go back to the study of political economy. Uh, I come from Kirkcaldy, which is the town where Adam Smith was uh, born. Uh, and he was, in a sense, the modern founder of the study of political economy. And he always thought, uh, and uh, you, know, you know, a lot of people have forgotten about Adam Smith, even when you go to Kakodi, some people think he's a pop, pop singer and not an economist. <laughs> uh, and uh, there used to be, as you came into Kakodi, the, the town I was brought up in, a sign saying Kakodi, birthplace of Adam Smith. Uh, and then in, uh, a few years ago, they changed it to Kakodi, twin town with... Uh, a, 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 a place uh, in Europe and Adam Smith's name was taken down but I think he's going to come back into fashion because his book The Wealth of Nations was underpinned in his view by his more important book The Theory of Moral Sentiments and that was a theory of how people can be persuaded to act uh, in uh, a way that is, uh, that is, that is moral uh, and in a way that can actually bring the greatest uh, benefit to the community and I would say that if we're thinking ahead, I cannot foresee a situation where the banking system is going to be stable, uh, and it's been particularly volatile in recent, recent years, unless there are global rules, unless there's a global constitution of, of principles, rules, and standards. Because I cannot see how countries that are doing the right things are going to tolerate uh, a race to the bottom in standards in areas where there is no regulation, uh, or where their regulatory or tax havens e exist. So I think the way ahead is to think of uh, political economy, to think of global uh, standards, to think of a constitution for our financial system that people can agree globally. And you ask where the momentum for that will come from. Well, there's two ways. One is that the international institutions work better. Uh, the G20, which we've uh, created as a leaders movement, the IMF and the World Bank, uh, and that is possible, but I think probably the more effective way, and I'm, I'm speaking uh, from someone who's experienced what's happened inside these institutions, is the pressure that will come from people in countries, because people will want solutions. If there's unemployment, and if there's uh, trade wars, and if there's climate change that is taking place, and people know that you can only solve this at a global uh, level, and people are starting to understand that, then people will press for global action and the power of the internet, the power of mass communications, the power of people to organize together, to talk to each other, the power that is seen sometimes in countries where there is dissent only possible because of the internet, uh, that power I think could be used positively to make sure uh, that world leaders understand that the message from peoples across the world is that you've got to get together to, to make for a more just uh, and uh, fair uh, global order and that's where I think popular pressure including from this audience can start to make a difference. I, I talked to a Chinese uh, leader, I'll not say who it was, and he said to me that the internet would fundamentally change China. And what he meant was that people emailing, organizing uh, across the internet were going to force uh, uh, changes in the way China was politically organized. Uh, and if that's being said by Chinese leaders, it's also something that I think we should take up here in the West. Okay, now, I'm actually going to take one more question, and I am deliberately going to take it from the person who's wearing the brightest item of clothing, okay? Uh, so, I'm sorry, all of those people with black, no, I quite like the idea of the... Howard, Howard's tie. Now, Howard's tie, Howard is, Howard is dressed far too conservatively. I've seen Howard in casual kit, and he's very dashing. Um, uh, I, uh, right, I'd like the gentleman with the blue and white uh, checked, uh, you know, I mean, all of you with the bright green and the bright purple, why didn't you put your hands up? Anyway, okay. Thank you for the compliments. Hello? Yes. Hi. Uh, sir, I have a question for you. Well, as a former prime minister during the financial crisis and the chancellor for this country for so many years, 
I believe you're one of the few politicians actually have the right background and public knowledge to answer this question that I have about the shadow banking system. Um, the shadow banking system has been shaking from 20 trillion to around 16 now, and still 4 trillion larger than the traditional banking sector. And in the past few years, it has been a major source of funding for a lot of mortgage loans, auto, credit card assets back. But at this point, there's still no regulation about this sector, which is, I think is a quite dangerous idea. So my question for you is, what is your personal view or what the government should do about this sector? Because we can't go on like this. Thank you. Do you, do you want to take one or two more? I was going to say, to we might that. just take a couple more just questions. Just very briefly Very briefly, that, because um, we do want to get out of here at a time that you can then all meet Gordon outside. So, uh, okay, you get to ask a question you have a stripe on. Uh, lady with the stripes, yes? <laughs> and we'll like the man with the green jumper, okay? If you could make your question as brief as possible, and then the man with the green jumper, over the bright green jumper over here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Maria Steva. I'm doing a Master's in Development Studies here at LSE. My question is related to the previous one. Could you co please comment on your previous government's role in the lack of sufficient regulation uh, of the financial yep. markets? And yep. given that financial liberalization um, starting in the 1970s have led to a massive increase in income polarization and in the rise uh, of the frequency of economic crisis, especially if you compare it to the Bretton Woods period. Could you please um, share with us how you envisage a new type of financial system? Yeah. Okay, and uh, gentleman in the bright green sweatshirt here. Uh, Prime Minister, thank you very much for your lecture. It's been very insightful. Uh, can I ask you, given that you're against university cuts, uh, will you be joining students at the demonstration on Thursday? <laughs> come on, come on, Gordon. Right, Gordon. <laughs> First of all, you're absolutely right about the mistakes that were made in the last 10, 12, 13 years in dealing with regulation. What we failed to understand was that when banks and financial institutions were taking on risk, uh, that that risk was not being wholly diversified across the system. Uh, and so we had new instruments and we had new institutions taking on risk, but actually instead of that risk being spread to those who could bear that risk most, we eventually found that institutions which uh, we hadn't uh, picked up because there was no global financial supervision to do so, institutions entangled with each other and when one fell, then it had an effect on all the, all, all the others very, very quickly. So there was a cascade effect uh, as a result of the, um, the behaviour and the entanglements of different financial institutions. Uh, I, I don't want to say... I, 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 I mean, if you look at the book, I, I, I have a, as an appendix a speech I get made in 1998. And I went to Harvard University and I made a speech after the Asian crisis. And I said, look... We're trying to solve a global problem with only national supervision. So we now have global financial markets. We now have global financial flows across these markets. We have financial institutions that are global, and all we have facing that is national supervisors and regulators. And I said then we had to have a global financial system, an early warning system for the world economy. We had to have transparency in the way financial institutions worked, and that would include what you called the shadow banking system. That's the report from the New York Federal Reserve, the 20 trillion that you're referring to. And I said all these things that could be done, but I could not win support for that across the world. Because immediately the Asian crisis was forgotten about, uh, people then reverted to uh, a complacency about the world financial system. So. Please don't say that we weren't proposing uh, changes. We were. The, pro the problem is we couldn't get agreement across the world to do so. Yes, we didn't understand, and, and nobody understood properly how the risk was being concentrated in a number of different institutions. But we did propose uh, quite major changes in global financial institutions to make uh, the global uh, financial order work. And I think these two forces of globalization, the global sourcing of goods, the global financial flows that we are seeing, make it absolutely essential that these two uh, elements of the system are underpinned by the ethical uh, values and the financial constitution that I'm really talking about at a global level. So I, I would urge you to look at 
what is being proposed and what needs to be proposed. My worry now, and this is the point that the uh, first questioner uh, made, is that when you have such a, an informal or shadow banking system that is free of uh, a lot of the regulation that is imposed on the formal banking system, doesn't have the guarantees uh, that uh, uh, the formal banking system has thought it has had over these years, uh, but still operates in such a way that is threatening to the financial system, uh, and sometimes operated by formal institutions using shadow banking institutions for part of the work, then you've got to have proper supervision. So yes, any global financial institution has got to include the sh shadow banking system, and I feel that the momentum for financial reform uh, is being lost at the moment when the pressure for it is even more necessary given what we now know about the way the global financial system has, has worked. Uh, and, and finally, uh, will I continue to camp? Will I be on the demonstration? I don't know, but I'll certainly be voting in the House of Commons, and I will vote against the rise in tuition fees. Yes. Well, um, I, I, we could go on all evening, actually, and actually Gordon loves to answer questions from people, so I'm afraid it's me being very bossy, but I also know that if we don't move on, he won't have enough time to sign books and talk to you personally outside. Um, uh, before we finish, uh, Gordon, I've just got one final question. Um, this book, I know uh, you are donating the author's fees from it to Piggy Bank Kids, which is the charity that Gordon and Sarah set up in 2002 after the premature death of their eldest daughter, Jennifer. Um, and um, I'm not going to read it out to you because I want you to go and buy the book and read it for yourself. But there is the most extraordinary dedication in this book from Gordon to his wife. It is incredibly moving um, and very personal, I almost felt. I almost felt I was in, almost intruding into your, your feelings for your wife. And I was just going to ask you about that. Did you think about writing such an extraordinarily... Uh, <laughs> well, let, 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 <laughs> Sarah, really Sarah. very personal. I hope she's left the room at this stage. <laughs> Sarah and I are both uh, writing books, and we've spent the summer uh, writing uh, books. Uh, uh, and uh, as, as I say, the, the, the proceeds of, of mine will go to charity. Uh, and we hope to sell um, uh, tens of uh, thousands of books, but I'm sure 99% of the books will be Sarah's uh, selling rather than <laughs> mine. So uh, I, uh, I, I, just, I just think uh, that um, the, the charity that we're, we are committed to is about helping mothers and helping uh, uh, children, and we want it to go international as well as uh, uh, national. But I've already seen some of the projects where we're preventing early uh, deaths, we're tackling uh, maternal mortality and making it possible for children who previously would be born with defects uh, uh, to be born uh, in a way that uh, means that they can sustain a, a full and, and, and healthy life. So that's, that's the purpose, and I'm, I'm not going to say what I said about Sarah. That is uh, something It's on page the 15 of the program, <laughs> okay? Because I know some of you already got this book and you're flicking through it frantically. So it's on page 15 of the introduction. Um, can I say a very big thank you on all of our parts to the Prime Minister, an MP since 1983, and he's gone back to being an MP. He's an incredibly committed constituency MP, a wonderful father, a wonderful wife, and a fantastic speaker. Thank you very much.